Dear Christian friends, an epic party is being planned. A party with the finest foods and, and drinks without limits, where everybody can enjoy us as much as they want. A party that will have so many kids' activities that they won't have enough time to actually experience and enjoy all of them. You've received your invitation to this party, and everything was clearly marked on the invitation. You know the, the date of the party. You know the time that the party is going to take place, and, and you have been given uh, the address where it's going to be held, and even directions on how to get to that party. And, a very important point, you have been in this invitation uh, reminded and assured not to use GPS. Because uh, a number of people have unsuccessfully tried to use GPS to navigate their way to this location. So don't use it. Follow the directions that the invitation includes. Well, the day of the party arrives, and, and you are scattering to get everything ready and to get out the door on time. And as you do so, you're in the car, and you realize that you forgot the invitation with the directions on it. Well, good thing that at, at, at some point earlier, you punched in the address in your navigation because you wanted to plan ahead and make sure you could kind of have an idea of how long it would take to get there. So you, you punch it back into your, you ring it up in your GPS, and you start to follow the directions, and then you get lost. And that's when it hits you. You remember that the invitation said to you, don't use GPS. Use the directions that are included in the invitation, otherwise you will get lost. So now you have a decision to make, because time is of the essence. The party is, is going on and you don't want to miss it. Do you figure that, well, I, I got the address, I make enough wrong turns, eventually I will get there? Or do you head back home and start all over again with the directions in hand? Well, I'll save you the trouble of having to make uh, a decision because I'm the one making up the story. So here's how it's going to play out. You're going to get to the party, and it's over. You arrive too late. Now, I, I think it's probably fair to say that everybody here would agree that as much of a bummer as it is that you missed out on the party, there really wasn't anybody else to blame but, but you, right? You had the invitation, you had the directions, you even had the very clear reminder, don't use your GPS, it will not get you there. Follow these directions instead. So as much of a downer as it was that you missed the party, and others might sympathize with you and for you, they would say, well, yeah, that's just kind of a bummer that you missed such a great party, right? Now tell me this. Why is it that we have a different set of standards and expectations when we apply this same truth to things spiritual. Why is it when we hear the words of Jesus this morning tell us that many are going to try to enter, but they will be unsuccessful? Why is it that that's God's fault? When he has clearly laid out for us the directions, simple as it might be, what it takes to get into heaven, and yet, when it comes to all things spiritual, why, why does the world, who would, again, readily agree in the first illustration that it's your own fault that you didn't make it to the party, yet when it comes to applying it spiritually, it's God's fault that some will not make it into heaven, even if they choose to go their own direction or their own way? Why is it that we have a double standard, that on the one hand we readily accept fault, but in this area of 
of our spiritual health and our relationship with God, it's his fault that not everybody is going to be in heaven. To help us make sense of, of that paradox this morning, which is that, that Christianity is because of its teaching that anybody who believes in Jesus Christ as their Savior can be in heaven, and, and that's it. No, no add-ons, nothing else is, is required. That, that this, as inclusive as any religion has ever been throughout history, and yet some will be excluded. How can both be true? How can Christianity be inclusive, and yet we know that it will lead to the exclusion of some? The answer is really how we are going to enter in through the narrow door. As Jesus encouraged us, warned us, reminded us this morning, he said in verse 24 of our gospel from our text, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Why is it that that phrase, these words of Jesus, rub us the wrong way? Make every effort. Well, well I, would, I would offer two reasons. One of them is a legitimate good reason. The other, not so much. The one is because that word effort just kind of tingles our, our spiritual spidey sense, doesn't it? When we talk about effort, we have been so taught and, and it's been ingrained in us that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, not by our own efforts. So this idea of effort and works and trying harder, why would Jesus be bringing that up at all? Why would he say to make an effort to get into heaven when scripture is so very clear that it's not our effort, but it's God's grace and it's faith in him, which is our only hope for heaven. And like I said, that's a, a legitimate reason for these words to kind of rub us the wrong way of Jesus because we know that, that no effort can ever get us into heaven. And then there's another reason, and this one may be a tougher pill to swallow because it's not as good a reason, but I, I think we all have to admit we struggle with it. Here it is. We're lazy. Jesus says to make every effort, and the fact of the matter is that we are just lazy. And we are lazy on a whole bunch of, of different levels. And, and before you, you balk at that and say, well, you know, I'm a, a guy or a gal who's, who's uh, pulled himself, herself up by her own bootstraps. I, I've done it myself, a self-made man or woman. Hold on. First of all, recognize that this started all the way in, in Eden, right? Our aversion to work was a result of the fall into sin. God gave work as a means by which he would bless. But sin tainted and turned it into a mess. And so we cringe at, at work still today on so many different levels, don't we? And it's not just because we, we have that attitude about work from the fall of sin, but our culture has really fostered a laziness as well, hasn't it? And I'm not just referring to how easily somebody can game the welfare system, and that's a, a debate for another time because it serves a good purpose but surely can be taken advantage of. You don't have to go there. It's, it's much more deep than that, isn't it? Uh, as far as our laziness, think of, you remember when it was such a novelty for a fast food place to have a drive through How convenient that was? You didn't have to park your car and go into the store. And a drive through saves all kinds of time. Well, now the good news is that you don't even have to go in your car. You can have somebody else deliver fast food to your house. 
How lazy is that? And not just fast food, but really anything that you want. You can have somebody buy your groceries and bring them to you, and basically anything you can find on Amazon can be delivered right to your door. You hardly have to leave your recliner, right? Everything is so convenient and, and, and easy and, and accessible. We don't have to do anything to get it. And the same holds true to our, our physical health as well, right? Why exercise and pay attention to what we eat? That takes work after all. Especially nowadays when there are plenty of prescription pills that pharmaceuticals are happy to come out with that will address our apathy and our laziness and our lack of discipline in our diet. So don't worry about those things, just take a pill for it and you'll be good. Housekeeping, landscaping, hire it out, have somebody else do it. Church, why are you even here? Didn't you guys know that you can watch church from the comfort of your own bed online now? Do you realize how convenient everything is today? And we're so busy, we, we've got things to do that are so more important than everything else. But I wonder if maybe we aren't a little too quick to slap the label convenience on everything simply to cover up our laziness. So what exactly does Jesus mean then when he says to make every effort to get into heaven. Well, to make every effort uh, is, is to remember the, I don't know if you ever saw the, the show Hoarders, and maybe it doesn't require the show, you probably could look in your own garage, your own attic, your own closet. When is the last time that you have sorted through things and realized you have way more junk than you need, and yet you hang on to it? Why? Because maybe someday you'll use it, maybe someday somebody will need it. And when Jesus says, make every effort, that's his way of saying, get rid of that junk, because this door is narrow, and if you think that you can bring anything with you into that door, if you think that your efforts, that anything you have done in this life is what's going to help you squeeze the door, you got another thing coming, because that door is too narrow for you to carry any of that junk with you. Leave your own efforts and works behind. That's one aspect of it. But we have to be aware of the other danger as well. When we talk about making every effort, it means to, to really focus on this one simple truth that Jesus is the only way that I'm getting through that door. And yet that is so simple, so easy to understand that it's also so simple, so easily overlooked and taken for granted. So that if we're not careful on the other end, our faith can be nothing more than a spare tire, which is handy to have in your trunk but you don't really need all that often, except when you have a blow-up. You know that it's there, but by and large, day in and day out, you don't pay any attention to it. So to make every effort is to realize those two things, right? That I am only getting in, not because I'm bringing any of my own works or righteousness with me, but also to be on guard against thinking that, that this is such an easy thing to get in on, on the coattails of, of Jesus that I overlook that or take it for granted or don't ever grow into that. And you better believe that this is a, a very serious thing to grasp and understand so that through these words, Jesus would jar us out of spiritual autopilot. Why? Because here are the consequences. He goes on to say in verse 25 and following, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. 
But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. Now, I want to make sure that Jesus' point hits home this morning. I want to make sure that we don't misinterpret what he's talking about here. It would be convenient, it would be easy for us just to assume that that Jesus is, with this illustration, referring to all people. There's unbelievers and then there's believers. The unbelievers are out, the believers are in. But really, this is kind of focused in on a more specific group than just all people in general. How do we know? Because Jesus clarified which group he's talking about. He's talking about those who actually want to enter the door, saying, Sir, open the door for us. So he's not talking about the atheist. He's not talking about the one that even cares about God or heaven or anything spiritual because that person doesn't give a riff about getting in the door, right? So who's he talking about? He's talking about religious people. And if we want to push it a step further, he's talking about Christians too, isn't he? So here's a question. When Jesus speaks those dreaded words that are the absolute worst words that anybody could ever imagine hearing with their own ears, when he says, I don't know you or where you come from, is he talking to Christians? Yes. He's talking to Christians. Do I have your attention? Now, I need to explain a little bit so that I am not defrocked after this morning's message exactly what I mean by that. Yes, he's talking to Christians if, by Christian, we are assuming that the definition of what a Christian is is open to interpretation. Because if that's the case, then there will be plenty, as Jesus says, many who share or apply that label Christian to themselves who will find out that they are anything but. What is it that makes a Christian? It's simple. Jesus does that work, doesn't he? Faith in in Jesus, who who lived, who died, who rose again to pay the debt for your sin and, and my sin, that is what makes a Christian. No more, no less. And I think equally as important as spelling out and being reminded of what actually defines a Christian, what makes a Christian in our culture, because in America we tend to do things the American way, is also to define what doesn't make a Christian. Because I don't know if we spend enough time on that. Here's what doesn't make a Christian. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Listening to Christian music on the radio or, or albums of Christian artists doesn't, doesn't make you a Christian. Being pro-life, being pro-gun, being pro-anything doesn't make you a Christian. Voting Republican doesn't make you a Christian. Loving America and displaying a flag doesn't make you a Christian. None of those things make you a Christian. Granted, Christians will do a lot of those things, right? Right? But boy, are we on dangerous ground if we ever equate the two as if those are the things, the identifying marks, those are what make a Christian. Because then we run the risk of hearing those dreaded words from Jesus. I don't know you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there's only one thing that makes a Christian. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He did it. He did it all, 
And he did it all for you. And that alone is what makes a Christian faith in that truth. Nothing you do, nothing I do is going to ever squeeze us through that narrow door. So dear friends, when Jesus says to make every effort, he says, don't let the distractions, the false teachings, anything else in this world that that would try to convince you that there's another way through that door, don't, don't buy it, not even for a second. You run the risk of having the door slammed in your face and being denied by, by Jesus. But it's his grace that has worked in you to know that those aren't the words you're going to hear on that last day. Because you know that an epic party is being planned. You know that it's going to be a banquet that surpasses, that rivals anything this world could ever offer. And you know that you have been invited and by grace that your name is on the invitation and and in the reservation waiting for you. You know that. Let's not jeopardize that that party, that invitation that is, is waiting for us by thinking that anything that we or anybody else could do would help us get into the party. And so when, that, when we're, we're at that, that narrow door and, and we're waiting to get into the party, what is going to get us in? Notice that it's not even just knowing Jesus as some in the crowd claim, according to Jesus, but it's having faith in him. It's relying in him. It's trusting in him alone. And we have that conviction, we have that confidence, so let's live in that confidence, but let's not stop there. During your time, during my time of grace here on earth, you know that that Jesus wants as many people as possible to enjoy that party that he's prepared. So let's do our part to bring as many guests along with us as we can by pointing to them, pointing them to the only hope that they have of entering through that narrow door. Pointing them to the only hope that we have. Pointing them to to Jesus. So that they too would not be excluded, but would be included in the greatest party of all time. Amen.